paper copy of God's perfect and holy word, I invite you to open up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. We are slowly uh, getting our way through um, uh, the, the Gospel, and um, we are smack dab in the middle of this just great section in Mark where uh, Mark is displaying to us the glory and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it calls us to ask the question, who then is this? And uh, that question ought to lead us to faith. And so far, Jesus has not seen that. And we're going to look into Mark 5 and see how coming on to these shores, things are going to be different. But allow me to, to pray, and then we will dig in. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great word. I pray, God, as we are, are weak and helpless, we ask that uh, the Spirit of Jesus Christ would come now and that he would empower us to see wondrous things out of your word and that we would leave here encouraged in the faith and emboldened to go into our community on mission. And it's in his name that I ask this. Amen. Well, Ron Avitzer was a 27-year-old computer programmer uh, working on a failing project in 1994 for Apple's uh, their power PC. In his mind, uh, the program that he was working on had, in, had an incredible potential for one of Apple's largest target markets, which was the education sector. Uh, but in August of 1993, Apple actually pulled the plug on his program. Most of the people that were part of his division were just reassigned to different areas of Apple, and when they asked him if he would like to be reassigned, he declined because he was so passionate about what he was, he was doing at Apple. He was sure that this project that he was working on was a, an essential element for the future of Apple computers, uh, that he desperately wanted to make this happen. So what was the solution? Well, it was to come into work any, every day anyway, even though he wasn't an employee. He was a freelance worker, meaning he wasn't a direct employee of Apple. He was a contractor. And he realized that if he did not hand in his, his final invoice, then his contract would still be valid with Apple, and he could use his name badge to get wherever he wanted to on Apple's uh, campus. To him, it was the perfect crime. So on his first day back at Apple without a job, it was just like any other day. However, he did recruit a friend of his who um, was destined to work without a job as well as his project was starting to be phased out too. So they spent their days sneaking around, uh, finding offices that were open or unused and trying to avoid detection. Uh, among their peers, it was sort of an open secret, and people really liked what he was doing and, and the vision that he had for sort of sneaking around and getting this, this project off the ground. It only took them two months to complete their project, and when the project was done, the uh, quality control people at Apple actually got wind of this project and offered them a chance to do a demo in front of the executives. And they're fearing the worst, and it actually became quite good for them. They loved the project that he had worked on, and since then, uh, there have been graphing calculators on every single Macintosh computer uh, that has been released. So if you have a Mac computer and you've, or an iPad or an iPhone and you have a calculator on that, it is due to Ron Avitzer's determined, uh, determined idea that the calculator would be an incredibly important thing for Apple. You know, for Ron Avitzer, 
uh, losing his job was a major set, uh, wasn't a major setback. For most people, losing their job would be a big deal, especially if they're passionate about what they were doing. So because of his, what you would call maybe a radical commitment to his project, this project became a reality for him and for Apple, even at great risk to himself. Well, as Christians, how are we supposed to respond to adversity? What are we supposed to do when it seems like our children are going off the rails? What are we supposed to do when we are bullied at school or maybe on social media? What are we to do when we're falsely accused of something or we are deeply hurt by what this person had said or done to us? What are we to do when we are gripped with fear of what might happen if this situation goes in the way that that we think it might? What do we do when the doctor tells us those words that we've been dreading to hear? Or when we have explored every avenue, every possibility, and we've exhausted every single option that we have, and it has come up empty. Relief just does not seem to come. What do we do when death is at our door, that it threatens us or someone that we're close to? When discouragement from adversity or suffering comes along, there are two things that as Christians we must do. And first and foremost, we must go to Jesus with determined faith. That's our first point this morning. Go to Jesus in determined faith. Look with me starting in verse 21 of Mark chapter 5. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, fell at his feet and began to beg him earnestly, my little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. You know, it, it's really easy when we are reading these biblical accounts to lose the humanity of what is actually happening here. We tend to look at these um, stories or whatever, these vignettes, uh, just as we do with other stories. We're disconnected from these characters. We're disconnected from the stories in such a way that we don't feel the weight of what is actually happening here. As Christians, we believe that these stories are historical. They actually happened. And sometimes, however, we're too quick to rush to the purpose of the passage or the application of what does it mean to us. But in order to see Jesus and all of his wonderful kindness... We ought to look at these counts in a very personal manner so that this text has teeth on it. Here is a father, like many of us in this room. And moms, you can, you can be in this as well. There's nothing wrong with that. And his daughter is dying. 
In the Greek, it, it goes even a little bit more, more serious than this. It's not just that she's in the process of dying. The word that the Greek uses there is actually that death is imminent. It is at its last minutes. This girl is going to die at any second here. And at this point, there's no hope of recovery. For some of us, you know all too well what this is like because you maybe have experienced something like this. It's a horrible thought. The possibility of having to watch your child suffer and decline. I'm sure that every one of you are with me when I say there is no dollar that we wouldn't pay. There's no length that we would not go to. There's no sacrifice that we would not make to help them. But there are some times when all the love that you have is simply not enough. There are some times when all the options you've gone through and it just isn't working. We are at the end. We're going to lose them. And this points to everything that is wrong with the world. Parents should not have to bury their children. Children are supposed to outlive their parents. And just by happenstance, Jesus happens to come to the area where this Jairus and his family live. And though his daughter's at the point of death, at the risk of not being at her side when it happens, Jairus leaves her and goes to Jesus. There's a significant detail that we can, cl- that we can gloss over here if we're not careful. Verse 22 says that he uh, was one of the synagogue leaders. He wasn't a rabbi. He wasn't a teacher. Uh, he probably would have been more what we in uh, evangelical circles would think of as a deacon. He was a servant, and one of his main uh, roles as a leader in the synagogue was to be the one that would uh, take charge of the scrolls within the synagogue and bring them out to the preacher whenever they were going to preach. And so this guy, this Jairus, would have been a significant individual in the community. Everyone would have known who he was. And at this point in Jesus's ministry, many of the religious leaders were already gunning for his head. I mean, here's a guy uh, that to them had defied the Sabbath. Here is a guy who had already blasphemed by saying that he has the ability to forgive sins. He has already called a tax collector to come and be one of his closest confidants. These are capital offenses to a lot of the religious leaders. And so as a a religious community leader, for this man to go and to see Jesus, he was facing an incredible risk. He's risking losing his position, his social standing. He's risking losing friends. He's risking his future. And And in the eyes of the world, for no reason. His daughter can't be helped. She's going to die. Because of his love for his daughter and his understanding of who Jesus is and what he could do, this man is willing to risk everything. 
He goes to Jesus, and he falls at his feet, either out of reverence or, or probably exhausted desperation. And the text says that he begged him, saying, My little girl is dying. Come and help her. Lay your hands on her so that she can get well. This is radical faith. He's not asking Jesus. He's begging him, please come. There's no hint of doubt. He knows that Jesus is his last hope. And notice Jesus' reaction in verse 24. So Jesus went with him. Jesus went with him. This is a stark contrast to what Jesus had experienced in the last 24 hours just the night before. They were going across uh, the, the Sea of Galilee, and a great storm arose, and so much so that the disciples thought that they were going to die with all this water coming in. It might topple over the boat, and Jesus gets up. He simply rebukes the wind and the waves, and everything calms down, and they're fine. Now, you would think that if you were on a boat where there was a huge storm and someone just told the wind and the waves, shut up and calm down, that you would have a little faith in this man. But that's not what happened. His disciples were terrified of him, the text tells us. And they asked, who, who is this guy? And then as they go over to the next, uh, as they, they reach the shore, Jesus encounters a man who has a legion of demons possessing him. And Jesus, uh, through a series of a conversation, he expels these demons. They leave this guy. They go into a herd of pigs. The pigs jump over the cliff and fall into the water and are drowned. And this man, whom everyone had feared because he had been so violent in his oppression, they see him lay, uh, sitting there calm in his right mind. And instead of saying, Wow, what power this guy has. And following Jesus in faith, they say, Get out of here. So Jesus at this point has only seen unbelief. And here now, Jesus encounters a man who is desperate who sees his absolute need of Jesus, a man who is willing to lose everything for him. And as he goes with this man, a second equally uh, desperate person, this time a woman, enters the scene. Look with me in verses 25 through 28. Now a woman was suffering from bleeding for 12 years and had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had had and was not helped. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I will be made well. So this, this woman's situation couldn't have been uh, more different than Jairus's. Whereas Jairus was a religious community leader, uh, people looked up to him. Here was a woman who, in that culture, women were, were looked down upon, second-class citizens, maybe even property in, in some areas. But not only was her, her gender something that she had against her at that point, but she was also unclean. Now, Mark is being rather uh, modest in his account here. Uh, because what this is more than likely referring to is a menstrual problem that has not uh, 
been helped in 12 years. And this is not only threatening to her life, but she can't participate in community life. To a Jew, the law stated that a woman was considered uh, ceremonially unclean, meaning that she couldn't participate in uh, the religious life of, uh, of the Hebrews while she was on her period. Further, it stated that if, if the bleeding continued longer than normal for an average period, then she was still unclean until it was uh, over, and then seven days on top of that. Even more, the law stated that if anyone touched any garment or any chair that she had sat on, any bed that she had laid on, then they would also be unclean. So here's a woman who is now in a very destitute situation. Not only does she have a physical problem, a life-threatening problem, she's got a social problem. No one wants to be around her. No one wants to touch her because she'll make them unclean. This has got to be an incredibly embarrassing condition. She also has an economic problem. She's gone broke going to doctors, and they haven't helped her. If any of you can relate to that or not. And so in her desperation, she makes a beeline toward Jesus. And notice the the radical nature of her determined faith. She doesn't care that there's a crowd around Jesus. She doesn't care how many people she is going to bump into in order to pave her way through, blaze a trail. She's going to get to Jesus. This is incredibly risky. Yet she presses in to reach Jesus, only simply touching his garment. Now look at verse 29. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased. And she sensed in her body that she was healed from her affliction. Jesus feels that this power has gone out from him. There are so many people that are around him, so he, he kind of starts queuing in. Who, 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 is this that, who is this that touched me? Finally, she comes forward, and in verse 33, it says that the woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him, the whole truth. Even here, she is showing remarkable faith. She, in front of everyone here, worships Jesus and tells him every embarrassing detail that just happened. But she does not care. Verse 34, daughter, he said to her, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. Now, we ought to see here that that Jesus makes a distinction between uh, faith and, and healing here. She had displayed what God put in her heart. She had the faith to, uh, to blaze that trail, to get to Jesus. And that faith was the vehicle by which she was now uh, united with Christ in faith. And in order to display his power and his authority, Jesus heals her. And we've got to take a, a little side note here. We ought not to expect that faith in Jesus Christ will always compel him to heal us 
or our loved ones. He might not. In fact, I think that we would do injustice to the Bible if we believed that divine healing was normative. It wasn't. You see, how many healing, how many healing stories were there in the Bible? Not a lot. In a large population, it was a rare thing. Jesus may keep us in our afflictions and in our sufferings to compel us to cling to Him in desperate, determined faith. And the question that this text, both the woman's story and Jairus' story, uh, begs of us is, firstly, what do we think of Jesus? Do you see Jesus as the disciples and the Gerasenes did? A threat. Someone to be avoided at all costs. Maybe a bit out of touch. Maybe even confused. Or do you see Jesus as the Lord of all creation who is able to change your life? Secondly, the question is, what crowds do you need to push through to get to Jesus? What obstacles do you need to forget about to get to him? Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it is being uh, uh, stuck too closely to the idea of having money. Maybe it is a relationship that's holding you back. Maybe it is a substance that is holding you back. Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe you just simply need to get over yourself and go to Jesus. Friends, Jesus has broken into our lives. And he asks us to trust him and follow him. Will you go to him? In the midst of all your doubts, in the midst of all your fears, in the midst of all of your issues and hurts, and follow him in radical, determined faith. Secondly, we need to progress into greater faith. Progress into greater faith. You know, in every hospital, there are times, probably more times than uh, we choose to think about, in which there are two extremes of emotions happening at the same time. In the birthing center, you may have a mother that is overjoyed at having a newborn baby placed on her chest. Then on the other side of the hospital at the ICU, there's a family who just got done saying goodbye to a loved one. In one room, someone may get the news that they are cancer-free or that they're in remission. Well, two doors down, someone is getting the news that their tumor is not only malignant, it's also very, very aggressive, and they have limited time left. In this scene, this woman who was, as a few minutes ago, not only a social outcast but suffered 12 years of constant bleeding, was now healed. Her life is, is never going to be the same. She can get married. She can have children. She can enjoy a quality of life that she never thought possible. And while Jesus is, is talking to her, verse 35 tells us, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, 
Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? This is a painful sentence. There's no sensitivity. There's no grace. Your daughter, she's dead. Why bother this guy anymore? It's raw. And maybe you have felt like this before. There's no way to sugarcoat these kind of things. You just suffered a miscarriage and we need to go into surgery. Your son was killed in a car accident this evening. With your current diagnosis, you have about three to six months. Or maybe it's something like you're fired. We are downsizing and we're going to have to let you go. Or maybe even I want a divorce. When such tragedy hits, it's like a punch in the gut. It can feel so final. Why bother Jesus with such things? I want to encourage you that Jesus is never bothered by us going to him with such things. Regardless of how big it is or how small it is, Jesus is never too busy. He's never too fickle to hear you, to love you, to comfort you, and to act according to his plan. Such uh, times are not designed to make us flee from faith, which tends to happen more than it should. Rather, they are times to progress into greater faith, to press further into Jesus. Look with me in verse 36. When, the synag- when, uh, when Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. You know, I'm not sure what, what you were maybe going through right now. I don't know what you've been, what you have gone through, or maybe, you know, what's coming down the pipe. But... Jesus' words to Jairus here are crucial for us to have a faith that presses deeper into Jesus. Don't be afraid. Press further in. Progress to deeper faith. In verse 37 through 40. He did not let anyone accompany him, except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. They came to the leader's house and saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. So as a dad, I can't imagine what this would be like. Because Jairus decided uh, to go to Jesus, this is the first time that he is seeing the dead and lifeless body of his daughter for the first time. And it's here that we see the tender 
wholeheartedness of Jesus. Look in verse 41. Then he took the child by the hand. This would have made Jesus ceremonially unclean. As a Jew, you don't touch the dead. You don't touch anything that the dead has, has touched. But Jesus here is willing to break all social stigmas in order to get to the person that he has his sights set on. He doesn't care what other people think. So he touches her hand and he says, Talitha, kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. And I'm glad that Mark provides that translation for his readers, but um, he doesn't really translate the heart behind it. Every morning I, uh, during the school week, I get the privilege of, of waking up my, my little girl. And when I go in there, I don't flip on the light and say, little girl, get up! Wouldn't be very kind. Instead, I go in there and I maybe rub her arm or back and I, and I say, hey, beautiful, it's time to get up. Or I say, hey, sweetie, it's going to be a great day. It's time to get up. That is the sense that Jesus is doing here. The thrust of Talitha Kum is that when it seems like there's no hope, when it seems too late, when it seems like we're just bothering him, it is Jesus saying, verse 42 immediately the girl got up and began to walk she was 12 years old at this they were utterly astounded rightfully so then they gave them orders that no one should know about this yeah that's going to go real well right and told them to give her something to eat so the proof of her being alive is right there in the evidence she got up and she walked and she ate dead people don't do that she has been restored. And one takeaway that we have to learn from this is that it's not setting a paradigm that will guarantee that Jesus will take us out of every single difficult situation that we're in, but it sets a pattern for us that if we progress to greater faith, these big problems as we see them, when we go to Jesus, will start becoming very little problems. And this little God that we often think of him as will be known as a great God in our lives. That is what God wants us to go to. And the interesting thing about this text that I don't think we think about too much is that we, we can't really consider this a true resurrection. I mean, sure she was dead, and sure Jesus raised her from the dead. But a true resurrection is a bringing back to life imperishable, never to die again. This, what we see here, this is, this is simply a resuscitation. But there would come a day for her when she would inevitably be placed in the ground. So when we think about that, it ought to cause us to pause and ask, then what is the greater point of what Mark is writing here? 
And the point is that Jesus raised this girl in order to point to his own death and the true resurrection. It was meant to foreshadow what Jesus would ultimately do on Easter Sunday when he was raised, not by some external power saying, all right, Jesus, it's time to get up but by his own power as being God incarnate. True faith is able to hold on in the face of death, being certain that God has conquered life and death through raising Jesus Christ to life imperishable. And because he used this girl to point to his resurrection, it points to our resurrection in him because Jesus was raised from the dead it provides proof that this world as we know it is not all that there is there's something greater coming the bible tells us that if we trust in Jesus for his work on our behalf then one day when we are dead and gone from this world we will be raised in a manner just like him imperishable undefiled without sin without pain only joy and if that is true then we can look at all of our situations, including death, in the face and say, you have nothing on me. Jesus has everything on you. He has defeated it for us. We can lose everything and have confidence that we will gain more in Jesus. We can look at the future without any fear, without anxiety, because we know that a day is coming when Jesus will say to us, Kum, wake up. It's time to get up. And we'll follow him. And when that happens, we will see that the cancer was worth it. The pain was worth it. The endurance was worth it. The loss was, was worth it. The death was worth it to get Jesus. Progress into greater faith. It is worth it. You know, in his great book on the Reformers, Timothy George recounts um, a story about Martin Luther, the great German reformer, when he was at perhaps one of his lowest moments. His cherished daughter, whose name was Magdalena, when she was only just about 14, had been stricken with the plague. On this, George writes this. Brokenhearted, Luther knelt beside her bed and begged God to release her from the pain. When she had died... And the carpenters were nailing down the lid of her coffin. Luther screamed out, Hammer away! On doomsday she will rise again. And you will too. If you have determined faith in a Savior who has conquered all through his life 
death, and resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in desperation. Lord, maybe we're facing situations that we don't know what to do. Maybe we are in incredible pain and suffering, Lord, and we just, we want to come to you, Lord, because we know that the purpose of everything is found in you. Lord, we come to you in our desperation. We come to you seeking greater faith. Lord, would you say to us today, Lord, wake up our, our weak hearts. Strengthen our feeble knees so that we can follow you in determined faith today. Would you do that miracle in our hearts, in our lives, and in our community today, Lord? It's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen.